If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. On today's episode, Melanie pitched District 9 so that we can study world building. This 2009 film was directed by Neil Blomkamp from a screenplay by Neil Blomkamp and Terry Tatchell based on the book Alive in Joburg by Neil Blomkamp. I like saying his name. It's fun. <laughs> of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And as always, we would love it if you could give the show a rating and review. Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Just go to the show's landing page, scroll to the bottom, and click the stars. It's that simple. Miss Melanie, what have you gotten us into this week? All right. Well, I did make a promise at the beginning of the season that I wasn't going to dive too far into science fiction and fantasy this season. But we do have to touch on it, I think. (laughs) So I'm diving into the world of science fiction. Um, And I have chosen District 9, though, to study this week for a very specific reason, because the world of District 9 is set in an alternative South Africa. So there are familiar parts of the world and there are unfamiliar aspects of this world. Now, I've revisited this week the text Building Imaginary Worlds by Mark J.P. Wolfe, and it's been fascinating. So I have used this reference in previous episodes in Season 1, you know, when we looked at Rogue One and also Dune. So if you'd like to hear more about Wolfe's book, then go back and listen to those episodes. Now, over the past three weeks, I've looked at world building using some basic concepts about fictional worlds. And these are great if you're new to biographical and fictional world building. However, this week we are stepping it up again. We are going into theory and I can't wait to share the three key concepts that I learned about this week. So they have blown my mind. So I'm quite excited about this episode. Now, this week I revisited the beginning of Wolf's book where he summarises world building theory. And there are some pretty key concepts in this section of the books. So I'm going to try and summarise them as best I can, okay? But if you really want to get into it and this fascinates you then, then or interests you, then, then the book is the best source. Right, the first key concept this week that I'm going to share with you is the concept of the primary and the secondary worlds. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote his explanation of these concepts in a number of papers and he built his ideas and theories based off the ideas put forward by the poets William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Now, Tolkien proposes that the primary world is the world in which we live and it's an intersubjective world. And then the secondary world is the imaginative world. Um, hey, Melanie, can I yeah. jump in and ask a question? Sure. What is an intersubjective world? What do you uh, mean by that? 
Oh, right. So an intersubjective world is where, so note that we don't, that I don't use the word the real world when we talk about primary and secondary worlds, right? So the worlds are, there is a subjectivity to world building and your experience of the world and the world that you live in. But what intersubject, what an intersubjective world is, is the common understanding that we have of that world. So a car is a car for me and it's a car for you. So the, so there's, there is interconnectedness between the subjectivity of the world. So there are some, it's a baseline basically of what we both understand the primary world to be and the meaning we ascribe, subscribe to the, the physical things or the understanding that we have of that primary world. Does that, does that make sense? Does that ex- does that give you enough of a concept of what I mean by intersubjective world? Yes, that makes sense now. Oh, great. Because I, okay. I, when you said primary world, I thought reality. Okay, so yeah. that's our contemporary society. But well, no, yes. it is not. It is, but it isn't. Is it? That's right. It's understanding that, yes, there is a sameness about that, but our experiences of that are subjective. But it still is the world which, you know, we walk around in physically as the primary world. Yeah. Yeah. Groovy. And that's Carry thanks on. For the question. Thank you for the question because <laughs> I got so into it this week that I forgot <laughs> to explain things. <laughs> All right. So the primary and the, the secondary worlds are hierarchical and the secondary world needs the primary world in order to exist. Now, Tolkien termed the process of creating a secondary world as sub-creation you know, because it sits under the primary world. The most fascinating aspect about a primary world and a secondary world is that they belong on a spectrum with the reference point being the primary world. So here is how Wolf describes the spectrum. And I quote, Thus, fictional worlds can be placed along a spectrum based on the amount of sub-creation present. And what we might call the secondariness of a story's world then becomes a matter of degree, varying with the strength of the connection to the primary world. And that's on page 25, end quote. Now, this really gets to the heart of what I wanted to examine this season. World building is an activity based on how far the fictional world moves away from the primary world. Now, I'll also share some of Wolf's examples of how the spectrum moves from the primary world, right? So as the anchor point. On the primary world spectrum, we have nonfiction autobiography, which claims as its subject an individual's actual lived experience as told by that individual. But even in this world, we have carefully constructed and, cur- and a curation of events. And thus, this type of nonfiction touches the surface of the fictional world. There's narrative nonfiction, which speculates about the characters and events that have occurred. And then we move into historical novels, which can be considered fictional versions of actual events, characters, and places. Now, while the events remain true, there is a fictionalization of action and dialogue. Then we move into overlaid worlds. 
So fictional events are set up in the primary world. And this happens like in some of the movies in the in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and also the Spider-Man movies. Still in the primary world, the more remote the location from a populated and well-known place, the more detached the world becomes and a boundary is established and we have exit and entry points into that world and it becomes more difficult to get into that world. Now, this is where we also start to move into secondary worlds. So a world's secondariness depends on how different and how independent it is from the primary world. And so what is a secondary world? Well, I'm going to keep this very broad because there are many ways to deviate from the primary world. But examples of a secondary world would be, you know, remote islands, desert cities, hidden kingdoms, underground worlds, different planets and faraway galaxies. So the more deviation away from the primary world, the more sub-creation is required and this concept shouldn't be news to most of us. But there are two fantastic concepts, right, in Wolf's book that are essential to understanding when planning the sub-creation that's required in your story world. Now, the first is, in order to understand a new world, especially if its secondariness is vastly different from your primary world, you need to expand your reader's belief system. Now, again, this is one of Tolkien's theories. So he argued that sub-creation is not an exercise in suspending one's disbelief. Instead, what writers are doing is extending the beliefs the reader already has. And then you're asking them to use that as a building block to join you in a new world or a variation of a world the reader already knows. Now, this makes sense to me, especially if the anchor point of all world building is the primary world. Now, the second concept is about how to create or how to sub-create. And I'm going to quote Wolf here because I think it's an excellent quote. Now, world building, however, often results in data, exposition and digressions that provide information about a world, slowing down the narrative or even bringing it into halt temporarily. Yet much of the excess detail and descriptive richness can be an important part of the audience's experience. World information that does not actively advance the story may still provide mood and atmosphere or further our image of characters, places and events. A compelling story and a compelling world are two different things, end quote. And that's from page 29. So in summary... The further away from the primary world your story is, then the more time you must spend explaining the world. So there are ways to do this effectively and there are points in a story where the impact of slowing the story will fit better than others. So I'll examine how District 9 does this shortly. Now, reading Wolf's book has helped me understand something that's bothered me for a long time. 
So I don't care as much about exposition and description slowing a story. It it just doesn't bother me. In fact, most of the time I really enjoy understanding how a secondary world works. And for the past two weeks, I've been reading the book His Dark Materials again. And I've been reading it more deeply than most books because I'm reading it to try and understand a particular writing principle. But this book is set in an alternative earth and the trilogy is set in a multiverse. So it is also controlled, so the world of Lyra is also controlled by a version of the Catholic Church called the Magisterium. Now there are points in the story that are pure exposition and description But all the information that this contains is essential information because without it, the story would not make much sense and we wouldn't understand how that world works. Now, this leads me to District 9. So I can hear you all saying, finally, she's getting to the movie. (laughs) It's really good, though, to understand some of the theory, right, and, and, you know, to understand how world building and sub-creation is done. But anyway, District 9. (laughs) I said District 9 starts in an alternative Johannesburg in 1982 and it's not a coincidence that Johannesburg is the location because this film addresses the issues of humanity, xenophobia and segregation. And it's also worthwhile noting that apartheid didn't end in South Africa until the early 1990s. So starting the story at this point in time makes the segregation of the aliens called prawns easier to understand, even if it is an alternative Joe Burke. Now, the main action, though, takes place in 2010. So history is important here because it gives us the context to the present-day situation in the movie. Now, applying some of the concepts in Wolf's book, I have identified the world of District 9 as a secondary world because there are specific aspects of it that are completely removed from the primary world, in particular the social structure, the political and legal systems, alien weaponry, geography, alien language and culture. So there are aspects of the District 9 world, though, that are similar to my primary world. And these include things like vehicles, mercenary companies, helicopters, human characters, housing, and having English speakers. Now, breaking down the movie from the perspective of similarities to and differences from my primary world identifies where the sub-creation occurs so we can examine what needs to be done to create the secondary world if we do this. The movie uses a documentary format in the beginning to deliver an explanation of the situation in Joburg and to give the audience a feel for how the residents of the city feel about the aliens. It also establishes what Multinational United or MNU has been engaged to do. And the interviews in the documentary also set up Vickers' transition from MNU worker to a fugitive. So Vickers talks to the camera to explain what's happening in District 9 as the MNU gives the alien the eviction notices and it also shows his contempt for the aliens. So his dialogue does a few things in that movie that also help the world building. Now, because movies are visual mediums, 
We don't get to analyse how description is used to build a world, but we can see the slum that District 9 has become. We see the conditions of the homes, the Nigerian crime lord who profits from the suffering of the aliens and wants to collect their weapons. Now, if we were writing, we would have to describe District 9 and how the aliens live, and we'd have to explain the Nigerians. We'd also have to describe what is going on in the lab where the MNU are experimenting on the aliens and Ficus. Now, these are all important features of the world and should be included. So when and where to include particular information essential for subcreation is important. In District 9, the secondary world is introduced quickly via the documentary style framing of the story so that we can orientate ourselves and understand what's going on and also the social temperature in Joburg. The world building is continued throughout the story. It's built via the settings in each scene, the dialogue, the peripheral action, so the action that's in the background of the main action that's going on, and it's also built through the alien weaponry and technology, such as the spaceships, and it is also continued on in that documentary format. Now, this is also an allegorical movie, and we could replace the term alien and prawns with any label used to segregate groups of humans. But this movie challenges us because the aliens are so different and they are at times difficult to empathise with. And like Frankenstein, Mary, you know, when Mary Shelley was asking us who the monster really was, I think that the filmmakers are asking us or showing us the same sort of thing. So I really like that linkage into that allegorical world and that reflection of human behaviour in a, in a secondary world. Now, all right, there's a lot I like about this movie and in particular it's a good movie to demonstrate the concepts of the primary and the secondary worlds and how to think about sub-creation. Now, my study this week has also helped me get to a place where I'm comfortable with using exposition and descriptions as tool to build a world. The further you move away from a primary world, the more time you need to world build and the world is just as important as the story for some readers. So, Valerie, what did you think about Vickers and the, as a character in District 9? I have so many thoughts. Okay. Well, I agree with you on your last point there. The, the world building is crucial, and it has a direct relation to the protagonist because, I mean, the, the Godfather was a great example of this the character, your main character is a product of their environment. Mm. So if the writer doesn't have a really clear image of the world that their protagonist lives in, the development of their character is going to suffer because they're going to miss stuff. Like when we think about Michael Corleone in his world, when we understand how his world works, he makes a lot more sense. Yeah, and it's the same with all of our characters, isn't it? So even if we look at Bridget Jones, even you know all of the even the the movies that we've studied this season and previous seasons, it actually you need to understand their world and why they behave the way they do in the first part of the movie because without that, it 
they don't make any sense. So it gives you the context for the characters, I think. And I want to pick up on something else you said a minute ago. Mm-hmm. You said that the aliens are so different that they're difficult to empathize with. Now, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, one of the things that I wanted to talk about today is how the filmmakers crafted the aliens so that we would empathize with them. Now, (laughs) before we started recording, Melanie told me a little trivia, and that is that it's a company in Vancouver, Canada, that did the special effects to create the aliens. And I said, ah, maybe that's why I empathize with them. They're Canadian aliens. Uh, but I honestly, I seriously, I empathize more with the aliens than I did with Vickis or any of the other, certainly any of the other characters. So I watched this movie this week with my daughter, who's home from university. And to be fair, she's not your average 20 year old watching a movie because she's my kid, first of all. <laughs> and she's also an actor. So she is paying particular attention to movies. But as soon as CJ, that's the, the, little kid alien, as soon as CJ showed up on the screen, she said out loud, oh, oh yeah, of course. So uh, we're supposed to empathize with them now, right? Like we're not empathizing with Vickers anymore. She got it immediately. And if representing the aliens as a family or seeing an innocent alien child isn't enough, the aliens are human-like. Yeah, yes, they have these weird tentacle things for mouths, but they have the shape or the skeleton of a human. They walk upright on two feet, uh, and they even have feet for that matter. They have two legs. They have two arms. They have uh, hand-like claws. They have front-facing eyes. They have a rib cage like ours and a neck and a head and all that kind of stuff. They also move like humans, not all the time, but often. Like For example, there's the scene uh, when Christopher is under attack, and Christopher's one of the aliens. And he's doing the, the typical Hollywood hero move, you know, with his, he's going behind his house and his back is against the wall and his arms are just out a little bit. And he's sort of scooching along behind the building so he can peek around the corner and see where his enemy is. We've seen it a million times. He's doing exactly that. So we're seeing him as human because we've seen so many human actors do exactly this. Uh, the aliens raise their arms and surrender. They cower on their knees, just like a, a person would when the MNU is attacking. And most of all, this is the really big one. There's a prawn when Vickis is in the hospital and they're doing tests on him. They parade a prawn in front of him with a big X on his chest and they force Vickis to shoot him. And that the body language of that prawn is human. It's 100% human. If all of that isn't enough, the aliens haven't done anything wrong. I had to go back and watch this part because I thought I must have missed something. Yes, their, their ship has sort of arrived in airspace above Earth, but they weren't hurting anyone. We don't even know how they came to be in our orbit. The aliens were in need of help. They have no immediate way to return home, which is why they are still on Earth, like for 28 years. They are trying to return home, though, at least Christopher and his family are. But humans keep attacking them and destroying their work. And of course the aliens are fighting back, but it's a defense. 
It's not uh, an aggressive attack. They're simply defending themselves. And when Vickis and his crew go into District 9, most of them do not attack. Most of them are very compliant. Um, they might, like like they keep knocking the the clipboard out of Vickis's hand, but that's hardly an attack that requires weaponry. So the aliens are portrayed very much as victims in this film and victims that we're meant to empathize with, I believe. Okay. And I did empathize with them. I liked them better than Vickis, frankly. And so let me talk about Vickis now. <laughs> so Melanie, I totally see why you picked District 9 as an example to study world building. 100%. And as I was watching it, I thought, oh, yeah, there's lots of great material here for Melanie to talk about this week. But when it comes to Vickis's character and the development of his character, I got to say, I'm, I'm disappointed. And I really didn't want to be. I really wanted this to knock my socks off. Now, okay, we have to understand that this is a science fiction action movie. So the focus is on external events. The focus is not on Vickis's transformation, right? This is not a, a character-driven drama. So we have to be fair in what we're saying here, and we have to have um, an appropriate level of expectation. You know, if we're watching Die Hard, we're not watching it to see John McClane's extraordinary internal journey. <laughs> we're not... <laughs> We're not watching District 9 to see Vickis's extraordinary internal journey either. So I'm sure that for fans of science fiction action movies, I'm sure this is ticking the boxes. But since I'm sort of nitpicking on Vickis's character this week, um, it reveals a few flaws. Yes, he does transform. No doubt about that. I mean, obviously, there's a physical transformation, but I'm focusing only on his, his character this week. But it's a Hollywood transformation. Blah. There's nothing nuanced about it. It doesn't even make sense. Ugh. I, I shall try to remain calm. Vickis's two main characteristics is that he's selfish and that he loves his wife. Now, in the end, he still loves his wife. We can't fault him for that. But now he's selfless. That's the big change. He goes from selfish to selfless. That all sounds good except that the transition from selfish to selfless doesn't make any sense. It's poorly executed because my guess is that it wasn't the priority. They weren't focusing on it. They were focusing on the special effects and all that kind of stuff. I mean, practically the whole movie, there's stuff getting blown up or guts being splattered on the camera and all that kind of stuff. This is not for the faint of heart, by the way. Uh, the, the film has a lot of handheld camera, uh, which made me a little queasy. So I'll just, if you haven't watched the movie, I just want to let you know that uh, in case you find it a little disorienting. Uh, I did, to be honest. Okay. Vickis's transformation in a bit more detail. He starts out as a mild-mannered bureaucrat. And as I said, he loves his wife and he's incredibly selfish. The antagonist in this movie is the bureaucracy. It's the system. It's the government. It's not the aliens. The aliens are the victim, which for an action movie is a, a core uh, character, by the way. Vickis is part of the bureaucracy. Now, he's a cog, 
That's all a small cog in a massive system, but he is part of the system. And he's very proud of what he's do- what he does, and he's honored when he gets the promotion. Because he is part of the system, he regards the prawns as his enemy. So if character is revealed through action under pressure, what can we learn about Vicus from his behavior? Well, when he gets the promotion, he's under enormous pressure to deliver. He's given an ounce of authority, and by God, he makes the most of it. He goes into District 9 all macho, or, you know, macho for him anyway, and he does not treat the prawns well at all. He allows his people to physically abuse them. He berates them. He threatens the prawn children. Uh, He discovers unhatched prawn eggs, and he burns them all, like with glee and pride. It's a big find for him. This is a big uh, feather in his cap for his bosses back at, um, at the office. Vickis is the big man on campus here. It's all about him and it's about his status. He wants to look good for the camera. But of course, it's all bravado because he doesn't want the camera to see him throwing up or getting sprayed by the black goo that uh, ultimately leads to his transformation into one of the prawns. So when Vickis is hospitalized, he keeps asking for his wife. It is obvious that his love for his wife, Tanya, is real and it's strong and it never wavers. His whole object of desire is to get back to her. Even when he's fully transformed into a prawn, he still makes her flowers um, because making crafts, homemade gifts was his thing. So he keeps doing that and he leaves them on her doorstep. Although how he's able to get out of District 10, which is where he's living at this point, to, to get into Johannesburg, to leave these things on her doorstep is one of the many, many plot holes of the movie. Do yourself a favor. Don't pick at the plot. Just go with it. You'll be much happier. There's a lot of plot holes. Melanie's going to disagree with me, I'm sure. However, there are. And they're they're pretty blatant. <laughs> And moving on. <laughs> before before I start a war between me and Melanie, I'll just keep moving on. <laughs> um, so when Vickis has begun to transform and he's forced to fire the prawn and he's forced to fire the prawn weapons, he initially refuses. He sees the prawn, like the one I was talking about earlier with the big X on his chest, as an innocent being and he won't shoot. So yes, this shows some humanity. Absolutely. But for me, it fell flat because we've already seen Vickis rejoicing at burning a bunch of prawn eggs, and we've seen him, you know, be mean and nasty, frankly, to prawns. It doesn't make a lot of sense. When he refused to shoot the prawn, I I was confused. Does he enjoy killing them or does he not? Because we've been given both versions of him at this point. Are we supposed to think that he sees himself as one of them now? Are we supposed to think that he suddenly understands their plight? I don't think so. I think this is a problem with the script. I just think they didn't focus on it. Melanie. Oh, can I ask? So I disagree. So I think the way they've set Vickers up is not, I think his father-in-law has set him up to fail. Oh, I right? agree. And that's what he, that it's what he's there. And so Vickers, in his haplessness, is actually 
and I think that that is a key part of understanding and making that rule. So he does that because he thinks that's what's required, but it's not actually really who he is. So I didn't have any difficulty making that transition from how he behaves when he's doing the job as opposed to when he's actually confronted in the hospital and he's aware, right, that he's becoming a prawn. So to me that makes more sense by by looking at his character as being set up because he's a bit of a hapless. You know, he's one of those people that is lacks uh, he knows he's a bit wimpy and and yeah and I do think his father-in-law has set him up to fail and that's what they're trying to do so it makes more sense to me and I can view his actions that's logical for me I, I don't I suppose I have a different view I would agree with you if we saw even a hint of hesitation before he burned the prawn eggs because these are the unborn children right of the prawns all the other stuff is a lot of bluster, like throwing the cat food at the prawns and that kind of stuff. That I could go with you on. But when he absolutely delights in burning the the babies at various stages for no reason, there's, there's absolutely no reason other than he can. Well, I think it, it fits in with a lot of social experiments they've done, right, where they've put good people into, you know, they've put... Um, I can't, there's a famous one where they've put them into prison roles and people have become the prison guards and there are others that have become the prisoners. And the roles that these people took on as the prison guards, they had to stop, you know, after a few days because the level of cruelty that these people were put um, started to exhibit actually caused them to shut down the the experiment. So I do think that if you are, and it plays out in war, right, in in war crimes and those sorts of things, if you put people in an environment where that is acceptable, then people then accept that as normal and become the worst version of themselves. So again, yeah, I see. Don't... So it's acceptable when he's doing it to the prawns, but when he is part prawn, it's not acceptable. Yeah. I don't think that's a logic I don't think that's a logic fail. I don't I, I, I do. think that's human nature. I think that explores that element of human nature. So <laughs> I so, think that's awfully deep for this particular movie where everything's just getting blown up. <laughs> I have to tell you. I have to tell you. I don't think this movie operates at that level of depth. I really okay. don't. Right. I think this is a problem in the storytelling. Because, and it continues, Vickers keeps flip-flopping back and forth. It's, and this sort of, this sort of backs up what I said in the beginning, which is at the beginning of the film, Vickers is selfish. So it's okay if he's hurting the prawns, but it's not okay if, or, or I should say it's okay if he tells his people to burn the prawn eggs but he doesn't want to have to kill a prawn. And now that he is part prawn, it's personal. So it's all about him in the beginning of this film. For most of the film, right up until the very end, it's about Vickers. Yeah, I think his motivation is like there's a level of selfishness. And again, I don't A level that of that's... selfishness? Oh, yeah. And I think He's totally selfish. Tanya, but Tanya gives him the... Um, the you know, the save the cat 
part of him, right? And of course he's selfish, but just the same way that Michael Corleone is selfish. He is selfish throughout the whole movie. He is selfish in the beginning because he doesn't want to be a part of his family because it doesn't suit him. And there is a level of selfishness there. And so I do think that it's it's not as this movie is not as probably eloquent in its execution mm-hmm. of that, but I do think that there is, as a character, that there are parts of him in that situation which ring true to human nature. So, and I, in that situation where you are taken out of, and I think this comes down to your, how your experience of the primary and the secondary world as well, and how well you can transition into that secondary world. And um, if you go from what is your normal primary world, and you have physically moved into a secondary world for a long period of time, then I see this. I don't. I don't have that difference that you do. I can see how that happens because I've been into war and I've been into conflict, and I can absolutely see how you move when you remove yourself from a certain type of primary expectation and you go into a secondary world. Your behaviour and your what you accept your, from yourself become very different so I oh sorry I bumped the thing so I just but to me I think it rings more true than it does to you maybe and I mean it's great that we have a difference of opinion right that you know because people will have that experience of this movie there'll be some people that don't like it and there'll be others that you know can see that human nature element in it as a criticism of human nature I don't think it's holding Vickers up to be you know a shining light of humanity at all I'm I'm not saying that that that's what it's doing I'm just saying I can relate to how you know he he becomes more human I think the less physically human he becomes which I think is the irony and the transformation that that he has anyway i'm sorry i'll let you get on with it so we'll agree to disagree and i'll let you get on with with your part of the podcast (laughs) all right so it's clear that um tanya his wife is not going to have anything to do with him as a hybrid um as far as he's concerned although melanie like you said it's clear that vickers has been set up by uh his father-in-law so it's it's not a leap to think that Tanya's rejection of Vickis is very much fueled by whatever it is her father is telling her about him. So be that as it may, it becomes clear to Vickis that Tanya is not going to have anything to do with him when he is part alien. So what does he do? He tries to chop off his alien arm. So this is a proof of how much he loves his wife. He will do anything to get back to, to be with his wife. Now, as a cog in the system, he rejected the prawns out of hand in the beginning, and he's rejecting them now, right? That prawn part of himself, he is rejecting. When the MNU is chasing him, he goes to District 9, and he brings the danger of, of the MNU who are chasing him, he brings that danger to the prawns. He doesn't care about them. He cares about himself. He goes to see Christopher for help. And once he gets it, he hits Christopher over the head with a pipe. Like, and again, I, I, I hearken back to the Godfather. Again, I'm going to get a lot of mileage out of the Godfather because that whole thing was about loyalty. And um, 
Vickis has no loyalty. Christopher did not need to help him, but he did. There was some, I'll say a hand of friendship, although I think that's kind of stretching it, but there was some basis of trust forming there because Christopher didn't have to help him at all, but he did. And because Christopher doesn't give him the answer he wants that, you know, Christopher says it'll take three years to heal you and Vickis wants to be healed immediately. He just picks up a pipe and whacks Christopher in the head with it. And the, the guy is flat out on the ground. So then he, he steals this ship that Christopher has been working on. I don't know for how long he's been there, 28 years. He may have been working on it for 28 years, but it's this important uh, escape vessel that's going to get him from earth back up to the ship, his ship, which is hovering in the sky and Vickis crashes it. So even right at the end of the film, when Vickis is in this bizarre alien suit, and all I could think of were the Transformers, I'm sorry, it does look like a Transformer to me. Or uh, in uh, the Marvel movies, Iron Man gets in this kind of a gizmo too, I think. This some sort of a suit he's trying to, I better not talk about the MCU. I'll get very confused. <laughs> anyway, he's in this, uh, this suit that um, like an alien uh, Sigourney Weaver's character got in a similar suit where she gets in and the suit becomes the armor and, and shoots the guns and all that kind of stuff. So Vickis is in this suit of armor and he's shooting all the, his enemies and he sees Christopher who is on his knees, a captive of the MNU he has been beaten. Vickis comes across him a number of times and leaves him each time. Leaves him there at the mercy of the MNU who will surely kill him. Vickis decides to save himself and leave Christopher to his fate. Now, this has been Vickis's MO the entire movie. He's selfish at the beginning. He's selfish all the way through. But then, for some reason... While he's in the suit, Vickis and, and Christopher is there. I think he's on his knees. He's got blood coming out of his head. The MNU is going to kill him. Vickis looks at him and walks away. And then for some reason, he turns around and comes back and sacrifices himself so that Christopher and his son CJ can escape. Now, this is the Hollywood moment that I was talking about in the beginning. We've seen it a thousand times. We all know it's coming. We all know that Vickis is going to turn around. Why? Because it's the thing that a hero is supposed to do. Except that it hasn't been set up. Vickis has not been heroic at all. What is it about that particular moment that makes Vickis turn around? Nothing as far as I can tell. And I watched it a number of times. Christopher has been in peril before and Vickis did nothing. Vickis even put Christopher in peril just a couple of minutes earlier. Christopher trusted Vickis, and at the very first opportunity, Vickis betrayed him. That was when he hit him in the head with the pipe. Now, this is an action movie, so, you know, like I said, Vickis's character arc isn't really the point, I don't think. And would I have picked up on this if I wasn't focused, super focused on character development? Probably not, because I would have been distracted by all the special effects and everything blowing up and the handheld camera and all that kind of stuff. But the fact that Vickis has a character arc, 
in this type of a movie, he doesn't even need to have one. He really doesn't. But since the filmmakers seemed to want to underscore it somehow, I think they should have paid more attention to it. Like, again, if you look at Die Hard, you can make an argument that John McClane is a different man at the end as he is at the beginning, in that at the end he understands that his wife's career is important to him, to her, and she's good at it and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's not a huge shift. We're not doing a 180 here. There's a little degree of a shift in John McClane and Die Hard, but who cares? We're not there for John McClane's big internal shift. We're not here for Vickis's big internal shift. So all this to say, I think they should have made up their mind. If they're going to give him the shift, they should have focused a bit more on it so that he didn't seem to be swinging back and forth so much, or maybe so that he was a character we could empathize with a bit more because he is the hero of the story and we don't have to like him, but we have to empathize with him. So if he's going to hit Christopher in the head with a pipe after Christopher helps him, that needs to make sense. We need to understand why he did that and we need to be okay with with that. That needs to make sense to us. And I think a lot of his action just didn't make sense enough for me to empathize with him. I empathized instead with the victim, which is a bit of a problem, in my opinion. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Melanie, what's the action step for this week? All right. So the action step for this week is have a think about where your story or your story world sits on the spectrum of primary and secondary worlds. And Think about then the sub-creation techniques that you have used to build your world. And if you're missing any, start identifying those. And that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss Fatal Attraction. You know that's my movie choice. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, subscribe to my inner circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to get Melanie's tips about books to help you read like a writer, visit Melanie on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill author or find out more about her at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm -hmm.